0: of faith and works. We on. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful, as it always is, to see everybody here on this uh, very blistering hot July summer day. Uh, everybody has braved this heat to come out uh, to Sabbath services, so it's good to see you guys as it always is. And today marks the fifth uh, part of our series that I started uh, back this year, at the beginning of this year, called The Ethics of Faith. And so today, we're going to be looking at James, the second chapter, verses 14 through 26. And the title of this message, as it always is, is The Ethics of Faith in Works. Now, just to kind of back up a few minutes and just kind of look at what we've covered Uh, In this series, uh, just to remind you, this series is on the epistle of James. We are covering the entire epistle of James. Hopefully, we will be done by the end of this year. It's a ten-part series. This is number five, so we're almost halfway done. And last uh, part, we covered James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And in that message, we talked about the ethics of faith in justice, And in particular, one of the things that James brought out for us in that uh, section of, of, of scriptures was the problem of partiality, the problem of showing favoritism. And so what we did is, looking at this and what James had to say, somehow or somewhere in the church, maybe James had heard about it, there was an issue where people were more concerned with wealthy people people of status than maybe you're more lowly brothers and sisters and in that message we looked at a lot of this was probably driven as the culture demands and as the culture shows us we look in the first century and sometimes the way that people try to impress the wealthy or uh, and usually it's self-driven it's something where someone else someone is important and maybe you can get an edge or maybe you can get an advantage in life if you treat a particular person of maybe status really well And so when we looked at that, the main point that we wanted to get out of that message was simply that we need to see and treat people as God sees and treats them. Not as the world does. Not looking at people valuing them based upon their social economic status. Maybe their popularity. Maybe they have a political position. But rather seeing each individual, no matter who they are, as God sees them and treating them likewise. I think that today's message, as we look at chapter two, verses fourteen through twenty six, it goes completely in line with the past messages that we have covered. James is a very interesting letter, as I've mentioned, but the thing about James is, is it reads a little differently than maybe letters that we are accustomed to seeing in the Apostle Paul, or even Peter, or even some of the other texts in the New Testament. And that is because James, although he has a central theme, you know, putting your, you know, your faith to practice, he kind of moves around different topics. And at the same time, is kind of still has a hand on that central topic of putting your faith into practice. So today, we're looking at chapters, chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. And as many of you may know, maybe you are understanding where I'm coming from this. But I was kind of laughing to myself when I entitled this, The Ethics of Faith in Works. Oh, that's a dirty word in some circles. Works? Man, for the past 500 years, and why I mean that, since the Protestant Reformation, the word works really hasn't had a very good reputation in mainstream Christianity. And a lot of this has to do with, of course, the history that has unfolded in Christianity throughout the centuries. You have a monolithic church in the Roman Catholic Church that taught that salvation came by faith and by works. And then you have this guy by the name of Martin Luther, who is a Catholic month of all things. And he started having these epiphanies, or shall we say these enlightening experiences based upon a rereading and a reconsideration of the apostle paul in particular solo fide that was the bandstand of martin luther faith alone and so if you look at martin luther's background we've kind of covered this before martin luther by the way did not think much of james and it goes hand in hand probably looking at what james has to say maybe why luther would have that opinion But Martin Luther was a German monk, and he had this issue of of never feeling like he measured up. He never felt like he would be able to achieve salvation. Because he never thought that he would be able to be good enough. And this radically changed him when he came to this enlightenment of the book of Romans, of the epistle of Romans by the Apostle Paul. And he started realizing that the true teachings of Scripture was that salvation came by faith that there was nothing a person could do to merit salvation and that is a correct doctrine of the new testament but does that mean works has nothing to do with christianity does that mean that works is just this side thing that's really not that important was martin luther correct according to the new testament that the roman catholic church at the time had an incorrect view of scriptures i believe that he was correct in that But, he went a little too far, and many followed after him. And so when we look at the landscape of Christianity, we see that there has been many different groups that have fallen into many different categories. And a lot of this has resulted in the idea of works. You know, that thing that was on top of faith, that earned you salvation. That has become a negative idea in many circles. But not all. Many Christian denominations, including Christian scholars, have corrected this view, although some preachers and teachers still teach an erroneous view of salvation, that it's just all about your faith, and really what you exhibit, what you, the fruits that you bear, really have nothing to do with it. So we're going to look at this string of passages in James, the second chapter, and he uses the word works, as I mentioned, which is the title, the subtitle of this, of this message. That word is the Greek word ergon. And it can mean many different things. It has a wide range of meaning in the New Testament. It can mean good works. It can mean evil works. It can mean works of self-righteousness. It can mean works of the law. As we see oftentimes Paul uses it in his discussions in Galatians. As well as in the book of Romans. But we're going to not so much focus on the possible contradiction between Paul and James. And just to mention some people see James contradicting the apostle Paul we don't have time to get into that but I do think that some of this is easily resolved as many agree that have studied both James as well as Paul and some of it actually shows or as we will see common sense tells us that Paul would completely agree with what James is saying so let's go ahead and let's go to James the second chapter and let's just dive in we're going to read James we're just going to read all the passages James 2 Verses 14 through 26. He starts off by saying, What does it profit, my brethren? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, there's that dirty word, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And so clearly, we see that there is a theme here. Faith without works, faith without action is dead. What does dead constitute? It constitutes uselessness. It can do nothing. There's no way of getting around this. In fact, it's such an emphasized point that we see in three of the passages. We have 13 passages we're looking at. In three of them, this terminology, this idea is brought out. Faith without action is useless. It is of no value. Verses 17, 20, and 26. I read a great quote from an author that I often read from. His name is Bob Deffenbaugh. And his quote Reads, faith that is professed but not practiced is of no practical value to us or to others. It does not serve and it does not save. Unused faith is useless faith. And so right here, when we look at James, we see two kinds of faith in action here. Two kinds of faith, or rather one faith that's not in action and one faith that is. Two types of explanation of two types of professed faith. So I have one main point today. I mentioned that there's two types of faith that's professed here. One of them is dead faith and one of them is living faith. And my main point, there's only one because I think that's all that really James is getting to. Practice a living faith. Not a dead faith, but practice a living faith. So let's look at that first faith. What is a dead faith? We just... all that James says faith without works is dead faith without action is useless right here James gives us an example of what dead faith looks like dead faith is substituting words for deeds look at James illustration in that second passage there passage 15 through 17 James gives this hypothetical scenario he says suppose a woman or a man comes into your congregation comes into your midst And they they lack clothing, and they lack adequate food. And what you do, instead of giving them what they need, the food and the clothing, to fill them and to warm them, you say the most ridiculous thing ever, go your way and bless you, be filled, and be warmed. But you do no action. You see, James' illustration is backing up what he just said. Faith without works is dead. It's useless. It does nothing for anybody. And right here, his illustration is showing that this is an example. What happens? What is the end result? Your words bless you, be filled, be warmed. None of those words do anything to fix the problem of this individual. It doesn't warm the person. It doesn't give them the sustenance, the caloric need that they have. It does nothing. They are useless. What good or what profit does mere words have in this scenario? Now, if you were reading James back in this day, as we are now, you would say, of course, there's no value in that. That doesn't do anything for anybody. Those are just words. There's nothing backing up that sentiment. Bless you. Go your way. Be warmed and be filled. There's nothing. And so what we see here is that words, although sometimes they can seem very righteous, They can seem like, you know, you can know the right terms, you can know the right things to say, you can sound religious, you can, you know, sound like you're this pious person that's just, you know, really looking out for people, but there is a time where they're just words, they just fall to the ground. And we know that words are important, things that we say are important, and we're going to see in Matthew the 7th chapter, if you turn with me, that Jesus even talks about words and how important they are. Matthew the 7th chapter, verse 15 through 23. We're going to see that Jesus, the words that he speaks, is a complete agreement with James. If you don't know this, James and Matthew, there's a lot of use of Matthew in James. In other words, there has been a lot of parallels, a lot of teachings that's been pulled from the gospel of James, or the gospel of Matthew that has been put in the the book of James. But Matthew, the 7th chapter, verse 15 through 23, it says, Beware of false prophets who come into you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every bad tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that bears, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Now, The reason I'm reading these passages is to back up or to show a little context to these next string of passages. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, You who practice lawlessness. And so we see that there is people in the world, there is an opportunity, not an opportunity, there is a risk, there is a chance that people can fool themselves to thinking that they're actually practicing a genuine faith. They're actually putting a genuine faith to practice when they are not. Turn over with me just another passage, Matthew 12 chapter, verse 33 through 37. to look at this and I want us to kind of just consider something a a potential uh, uh, not alternative reading of Matthew the 12th chapter but rather something that can be as of equalness to what the traditional view of this passage says so it says in Matthew the 12th chapter verse 33 either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad remember fruit is the product of something so that's what we're looking at. Faith and the product of faith. Is there any good product from faith? For a tree is known by its fruit, bread of vipers. How can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account for it in the day of judgment for by your words you will be judged and by your words you will be condemned now traditionally and correctly I believe this is referring to many different things it can refer to people speaking idle words in the sense of something very unrighteous something very foul but what about idle words vain, you know, useless words where you speak kind of like we just saw in James the second chapter but they're not really backed up with anything real Yes, we say, bless you, be filled, be warm, but we don't do anything to help with the situation. Could that not be also considered idle words? When we speak things and we try to, you know, we, we you know, superficially have idle words and we bless people, but really there's nothing behind it. There's nothing that's really proving that you are genuine about what you are saying. There's nothing backing it up. There's no fruit Good fruit, that is, at least, that's bearing to what you are saying. So that is right there, as James shows us, that this is an example of dead faith. Substituting words for action. Another way that dead faith is professed, or dead faith is practiced, is just by mere intellectual profession. Intellectual faith that has nothing behind it. Okay? Think about that. We're going to look at that in a minute. And we can think about many different examples. You know, what about our understanding of theology? We know theology. We know the right terms. Maybe we know the Bible really well. But it stops there. It ends there. It doesn't proceed to demonstrate a transformed life. I'm going to give us a little bit of an example. Uh, James says that even the demons believe. He says that you believe in God, (laughs) you do well. But so does even the demons. They even believe in God. They even have a level of faith. But again, it's a dead faith. Because obviously, they don't have a faith that leads to salvation. Let's think about this in our own context. In our own history. What about the examples of maybe we have seen in our own tradition. Where people in the churches of God. They kind of solely rely on, well, I know the truth i got the truth and that's what really matters the most and don't get me wrong the truth is important obviously the truth is important i know about the sabbath i know about the holy days i don't eat pork i don't eat gentile meat i know about these things and i'm in god's church i'm in the church that's doing god's work i follow after this organization i'm a part of this church i'm a part uh, of following after this evangelistic you know individual I think it would be foolish for us to believe that we have not seen some of that in action in our own history not our history as a church i'm saying in this congregation per se i'm saying just overall in the church of god experience and we see this people tend to sometimes rely on who they're a part of what group they're with and we've seen that many times before turn with me to luke the third chapter Luke, the third chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. This is John the Baptist speaking. Luke, the third chapter. John says, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham... From these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit. Is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so the people asked. The people asked him saying. What shall we do then? And he answered and said to them. He who has two tunics. Let let him give to him who has none. And he who has food. Let him do likewise. Verse 12. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized. And said to him. Teacher what shall I do? Verse 13, and he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed to you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse, falsely, or, or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Now, why am I reading this passage? That might be kind of, you know, you might be curious about that. Let's just think about the context. John the Baptist, a Jewish person, living among uh, his brethren, his his, you know, heritage people in the first century. Right before the entrance of Jesus Christ. And he's looking out at the landscape. And he's looking at this, I guess you would say, kind of this warped view of many. Or many that had, you know, somehow undertook a warped view of who they were. They were the promised people. Look what he says. He says, don't say to yourself, we're children of Abraham. He says, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones in other words these individuals in this first century had become so reliant upon their heritage they're the chosen people and I've mentioned this in a a message before they're the chosen people they are the ones that all the promises of the of the old testament refer to and, and point to all those different things are supposed to happen be fulfilled all these different things that are regarding the house of Israel or the house of Judah and so in their minds, there was almost this, like, well, God has to be. I mean, we're the chosen people. All of these prophecies, you know, that God has promised. He, they have to be fulfilled through us. We're the ones. And he's saying, no, that's, you are replaceable. God can actually exchange you for other individuals and bring them up from these stones. They had gotten to this idea, this thinking of relying upon who they were. Now the funny thing about this is it seems to be more than anything directed towards the religious leaders. Because as we see in the New Testament and see especially in the times of Jesus when he was born and the people he was talking to, oftentimes he was referring to and talking to the, the destitute, the people that had been downtrodden, the people that the religious leaders you know, held themselves over and really didn't take care of like they were supposed to. And so what we see here Is that there is a issue of people relying on who they are. Thinking that that is enough. Look at what he recommended them do. You're forgetting the poor. You have two tunics. Go find someone that only has one. Or has none. And give them one of yours. And so we see right here. This is complete. We see that in the previous messages. We see that a lot of what James focuses on. Is simply the rich and the poor. And particularly how we are to treat the forgotten, the downtrodden. And James seems to be still focused on that. And we still have downtrodden people always in the church among us. It might be financial issues, but it might be other things as well. It might be emotional issues. It might be mental health issues. It might be other problems that they have. Are we putting our faith to action when we come across brothers and sisters and just people in the world in general that are in need that are in need of many different things, not always just financial things. And so we see right here, these are two examples of dead faith. People who just substitute words for action. Or people who just merely rely on intellectual knowledge. Well, I can sit here and I can, you know, spout off, you know, the history of the church of God. Or I can pretty much, by memory, tell you everything about our doctrines. I know everything about, you know, the different ideas of Revelation... I know all the different uh, you know, booklets, all the different key doctrines. I can explain to you why Passover is this, or I can explain to you what the Azazel goat and Leviticus is for the Day of Atonement. All of these different things, which are good, but if they're not translated into some sort of useful faith, genuine faith that proves works, that proves that it is out of a genuine transformation by the Spirit of God that has been placed upon us and Christ living in us, they are dead. They don't do anything for not only you. They don't do anything for anyone else. And that is the point of Christianity. Christianity is not about just having some head knowledge. And I love a good theological conversation. I'm just like anyone else. I love studying the Bible and just learning new things. And even myself, I think you know, some of us can maybe even realize this. Sometimes we focus too much... On the intellectual part, which is important, God did give us the cognitive abilities and expects us to reason and understand and to read his scriptures and to use logic. But if it doesn't translate into something that exemplifies the character of Jesus Christ, that exemplifies discipleship of Jesus Christ, it is dead. It doesn't do anything, it's not living. Living faith is something that's transformative. It's transformative in you, and also it transforms those who come in contact with you. So let's look at what living faith is. Two examples that James gives us, one of Abraham and one of Rahab. And this is where people start to get into some controversy about what James says versus what Paul says in the book of Romans. James, I'm going to just reread chapters And not by faith alone. This right here. Has been a very controversial. Set of passages. Because we see that in Romans. As well as other passages of Paul. Paul explicitly says. That a man is justified by faith alone. And so faith. As we see what James says here. Was working together with his actions. And by his actions. His faith was made perfect. The question we have for ourselves. When Paul said that. We know that Abraham was justified by faith. We readily and easily and holistically believe Paul. Because we see the fruits of that. How do we know that Paul, or not Paul, but Abraham was justified? We've read his life story. We see that not only was it said that he believed God. But his actions after that showed the fruits of such belief. Many scholars, believe it or not try to argue that there is a contradiction between paul and and james but many don't they think that it's completely in line with what both says see what you have to remember is is that when paul talks about abraham being justified by faith alone paul's talking about genesis fifteen six, where god's delivering the promise to abraham about him having a son although all human reason would say that that was ridiculous at his age but he believed God. But when we see James talking about justification in Abraham, we see that James is referring to Genesis, the 22nd chapter, verses 9 through 10, which is the passage about Abraham acting on that faith, on that belief, and actually carrying out the attempt to sacrifice his son Isaac like God had asked him to. And so what we see here is that Paul's talking about justification before God being made righteous before God and talking about how that was done through faith and James is showing that justification in action he's showing that that justification is now being demonstrated by his willful act and might not have been willful I'm sure he was very hesitant to do this but he knew that God was the God of all heaven and he knew and trusted in God but he carried it out or he attempted to him before God stopped him. And so we see the justification that's taking place. And James is referring to the justification, the proof, the fruits that Abraham had been justified. That he really did believe. It wasn't just a vain faith. It wasn't just a useless faith. It wasn't just a mere profession. But it was a profession that was characterized by works, by action, by carrying out And being obedient to God. In this, we see even in Ephesians the second chapter, verse ten, that Paul agrees. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have not went over a whole lot to demonstrate that Paul and James are not in contradiction. There is many different messages that you could give to demonstrate this. But let me just leave you with this one simple common sense idea. Paul has written the bulk of the New Testament. Most of the letters in the New Testament, he is encouraging, but also correcting. If Paul did not believe that works, that action, that fruit should follow genuine saving faith, why is he writing to the people of Corinthians, the Corinth church, and talking about a man... Having his father's wife. Why is he writing to all of these different churches. And trying to correct them. In the inappropriate behavior. Or the misguided behavior. Or the misguided beliefs. That's resulting in misguided behavior. Obviously Paul. Does believe. That works. That genuine works. Follows genuine faith. It's not. Faith plus works. It's faith. That is going to ultimately because it's genuine demonstrate itself in genuine works a genuine faith in christ a genuine transformative implanted word as james says is going to result itself in a person living out a life that's faithful to that faith to being a disciple of jesus christ think about it this way abraham was he perfect of course not does that mean that if we ever stumble man I thought I was, you know, I really believed. I thought I was justified. I thought I had genuine faith. But obviously I slipped up here. and My actions say otherwise. Of course not. Even Abraham himself, the man of genuine faith. The man that demonstrated through his actions that he had genuine faith. Saving faith. Justifying faith. Even he slipped up. But what we are talking about is that a person who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That has really received and genuinely in their heart has been cut. And repented and been baptized. Is going to exemplify the fruits. Just as Jesus said. Just as James says right here. And just as Paul assumes. Throughout almost every one of his letters. So. By works. Faith was made perfect. That's what. That's what James ends on here. With with Abraham. This Greek word is. Which is derived from the same. Root word as mature and complete. In James 1.4. You see faith. And worked, was working together to show a completeness. To, to complete each other. They go hand in hand. Faith has a goal. Has an aim. And that aim is to transform. Remember the, the scriptures. Paul himself says that you know, we are going to live this life. And our goal is to be transformed in the stature and nature of Jesus Christ. So that faith is living. It's not something that we get one time. And it's just stagnant. But rather it's supposed to be growing in us. And as it grows in us. We are exemplifying. More and more the character of Jesus Christ. That wasn't just about words. but was about backing up those words with action. You want to be impressionable to people. You want to leave an impression on someone. Act upon your profession. Prove. What you claim to believe, what you claim to be, through your life. Let's think about it this way. And I've probably said this before. It's a quote that I've heard before, and I thought it was very interesting. You are the only Bible most people in this world will ever really read. Let me say that again. You are the only Bible that most people in this world will ever read. Most people, they don't really. Even Christians today don't necessarily read the Bible much not all some uh we could all probably use a little bit more scripture reading and bible study i mean we have we go in ways but many people they just kind of you know we've talked i've talked about this with matt still before a hundred years ago bible literacy was very high in america and a lot of that was because oftentimes people learn how to read through the bible it's not so much anymore and unfortunately, and I, I'm a, I can testify to this, I do teach a uh, uh, Bible literacy course, and uh, some of the stories that you assume everyone knows about are not as commonly known by young people today. Uh, not, not like it was 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and of course 100 years ago. And so what I'm saying to you is, is that with this fast-paced world that we live in, many people are the only bible they're going to get is you you in action your life you living in front of him if you want to make an impression on somebody if you want to be a real representative of christ and let the light of christ shine through you remember genuine faith results itself in genuine action i'm going to go ahead and skip rahab just because of time but one more quote this is by warren wearsby Maybe you've heard of Warren Wiersbe before. He's written many different books, uh, commentators, uh, pastor for many years. But he, he quoted this, and I thought it was very interesting. He says, no man can come to Christ by faith and remain the same any more than he, can't, he, can't, uh, he can come into contact with a 220-volt wire and remain the same. So that's the point. Jesus Christ, the living Savior, the Messiah, The one that died and rose again. That has enabled the transformative power. To be in us through the Holy Spirit. There's a reason why Christ said go make disciples of all nations. Not disciples of people that just know about Jesus. Know about the resurrection. Know about you know the word of God. But disciples meaning that has changed the individual. That has put the individual and the disciple is becoming the, you know, the teacher, not becoming the teacher like you're becoming Jesus, but becoming of the character and of the stature of Christ, of that teacher, of that uh, one that you are following. So as we reflect on James' words today, I just want us to reflect on our own faith and think about this, because I think all of us, you know, I'm not going to say all of us, I'm just going to put myself in the spotlight. I think I can definitely think of times in my life where I have not practiced my faith where I have exemplified it, not a living faith, but kind of a dead faith. That I didn't really, uh, you know, I was not faithful to what I claim intellectually and in my heart to be. And so sometimes I think that that it's possible for even Christians to fall into that trap. I mean, we can even see Abraham, the man who has been justified by his belief and demonstrated through his actions that that justification was genuine. Even he sometimes slipped up. Or David or even some of the apostles themselves which would all agree that they're not, you know, they're fallible human beings. So as we reflect upon this, let's think about how important our faith is, not just what we believe, but how it's supposed to be living in us. It's supposed to be continually transformative. It's supposed to continually demonstrate itself that we literally are lights of Christ that when people look at you, and they follow you, and they see your life, that there is definitely a, something different about you. something A light about you. Something that's, that's you know, that they, they can count on about you. Because you're a person of your word. You're a person of conviction, not just by your mouths, but by your actions. And so as we do this, let us all reflect upon this, because our goal in this life is to reach the stature of Jesus Christ, and in Result of that, we're trying to be a witness to this fallen world.